Our sermon will be taken from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Ross. Friends, welcome to CCC. Exciting to have you. Exciting to see you again. Uh, if this is your first time, again, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, please come up to me, and uh, we can we can we can chat for a bit about the church or anything else you want to talk about. Um, and today uh, we are, as you probably have heard over and over again, mentioned throughout the worship. It's it's Easter Sunday, where we're remembering and pondering upon and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And originally, I wanted to choose a passage from a different book, because you know that we've been going through the book of John, and uh, I wanted to do something different, you know, mix it up, find a resurrection story from another book. But um, as we'll see later, what we've studied in the book of John so far, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see that it actually fits perfectly with our passage today. Um, So that's why I chose John 20 again as our our passage for today, and, and, and we'll see how that connects later. So... Preaching about the resurrection of Christ, it can be pretty tricky. A lot of people have different problems uh, with it altogether. Some people think it's, it's unbelievable. It's something too um, unbelievable. Something like the resurrection, that, that's more something that people back then in Jesus' day, that's more something people back then pre-scientific enlightenment era believed, right? But, but for us enlightened people today, that's not something we believe anymore. So for a lot of people, it's, it's unbelievable. But also for some people, they might not say it's unbelievable. They probably say, okay, sure, it could be true. But it kind of feels irrelevant. It kind of feels like you're talking about UFOs or Bigfoot or the Yeti. I don't know. But some of these things that are kind of irrelevant, it's like, yeah, it could be true. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, whatever. I don't think they're true, by the way. I'm just, I'm just saying, um, you know, some of these things and you're just thinking, but they're not really... They're not really relevant uh, to us today. It's just sort of distant out there. And a preacher talks about uh, the resurrection. He opens up in this way. I think it's pretty interesting, so I'm going to steal it. Um, he said, uh, if, if today you go home and you find in your house a male, uh, it's, it's a, a pretty official-looking male from some big law firm somewhere, and you get and you open it and you read it, and it says that... Um, you have a, a relative that just recently passed away, and this relative left you with $10 million. 
and it gives you a number. If you want further information, you can call this number or email this or whatever. You probably think, you know, it's probably a scam, right? In a world today where there's so many scams, where things are just really fishy and unbelievable, you probably think, yeah, it's probably a scam. But you'll, you'll probably call the number, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'll probably look into it because it's $10 million. I mean, it's a lot of money. You know, you probably think it's a scam, but it's worth looking into uh, because the risk of it being true, if, if it is at all possible, is, is huge. It's huge. And the claim that Scripture makes about the resurrection of Christ um, is infinitely more valuable than $10 million. Uh, and it's at least worth looking into. So there's three things I want to point out from our passage today. One, a hope that is suspicious to us. Two, a hope that is unbelievably urgent for us. And three, a hope that extends even to the worst of us. A hope that is suspicious to us, that is unbelievably urgent for us, and extends even to the worst of us. Before we start, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we beg you um, that your spirit will help reveal these truths to us from your word, the only way in how we can truly receive it, the only way in which the words from your scripture can be made effective in our hearts. We beg you for more of that today. Father, thank you that you are a father who explains things to us and reveals things to us about um, these rich, unbelievable, infinitely valuable truths like your death and resurrection. Make us stay in it, help us understand it, be with our minds and with our hearts as well as we try and ponder upon it further. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. A hope, the resurrection is a hope that is suspicious to us. Let's begin with this account of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, verses uh, 1. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, um, that'll be important later. We'll talk about that later. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So let's look at the setting real quick. It was, it, was, it was the morning, it was the dawn of the first day of the week. The first day of the week is another way to say Sunday. It's a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. The crucifixion happened, if you look at chapter 19, the end of it, throughout it all, you can see that the crucifixion happened the day of the preparation of Passover. So there's the Passover feast where Israel would remind themselves of what happened in Egypt and how they were delivered from the slavery in Egypt. And this Passover feast, which is on a Saturday, the crucifixion happened the day before that, the day of preparation of Saturday, the day of preparation of the Passover. So the crucifixion happened, and, and, and the, the end of verse 19 is Jesus dead, truly dead, being buried, being put in a tomb, and you see the setting, it's, it's, it's dark, it's night, it's becoming nighttime, it's late. And now John skips Saturday, and he starts the next passage, the next section, Sunday morning. And you notice it's still dark, right? It's still dawn. It's the, and John made a note to write that. The darkness that continued from chapter 19 now still continues Sunday morning, but light is beginning to shine out of the darkness in this dawn of Sunday morning. So who appears in the scene? Mary Magdalene. And what does she see? Verse 1. <clears throat> the stone 
which is a large stone that people use at the time to, to, um, uh, to uh, cover uh, uh, tombs, had been taken away from the tomb. And how did she react in verse 2? She ran back and told Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is a reference to John, the one who wrote the book, John the author. And if you want details on that, look up a sermon from three weeks ago, I think, John 1, verse 35 to 42. Look that up. But, but Mary ran back and went to Peter and John. And what did she say? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Do you see Mary's assumption here? If the stone was rolled away, the only plausible explanation, Mary thought, is that somebody must have taken Jesus' body. It, it was somebody took it. See, even for people back then, the resurrection was something very suspicious, even almost unbelievable. Mary's first reaction was not, he is risen. No. Of course, it wasn't. People that are dead tend to stay dead. <laughs> we all know that. And even people before the pre-scientific enlightenment era knew that too. We have to be careful not portraying them as some kind of gullible, ignorant cavemen. Okay, they, they're not. They can reason as well. They have thoughts as well. Mary's first reaction, he saw it. And he said, and she said, somebody must have taken him. It's quite funny. A group of people um, that did this thing called the Jesus Project, I can't remember, it was a few years back. One of their claims, they, they claimed that Jesus actually never resurrected. And, uh, and one of the arguments is that people back then believed in stuff like this. They're, they're more, more gullible. They don't really know science and, and things like that yet. Um, and, and one of the things they did to prove their point is they went public with it. And they, they went to the press, and to the press, they brought um, an eyewitness, a lady who works at a morgue. A morgue is where you prepare dead bodies and you bury them. A lady who works at a morgue, and they brought the lady to testify to the press as a first-hand witness of the shocking reality that dead people tend to stay dead. as if that was a claim that anyone needed further convincing of. <laughs> we know dead people tend to stay dead. It's not a common occurrence that they rise from the dead. This is not a new discovery. This is not a new revelation that us post-scientific era found out. No, people way before Jesus' day knew this and realized this. You have to be careful to not assume they were dumb or gullible or cavemen. Look at Mary's reaction. She reasoned, according to natural law, dead people tend to stay dead. So the explanation of the tomb being all moved around is that somebody must have come and taken Jesus. And this applied not only to Mary, but the suspicion went to Peter and John as well. You look at verse 9, it says, after they saw the empty tomb, verse 9 says, for as they, uh, they verse 8 says they, do, they did believe, but it's only a beginning of believing because verse 9 says, for as of yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It's not a fullness of understanding just quite yet. And all the other disciples and all the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all portrayed as being sad and, and defeated after the crucifixion. It's as if, so they're saying our Lord is dead. Our Messiah is dead. He's been crucified. That's it. We're done. By the way, that's how every other messianic movements back in Jesus' day reacted. So back in Jesus' day in the first century, there was about a dozen, 10 to 12 
uh, false, but messianic movements of people who claim to be the Messiah, people who claim to be the one who the Old Testament wrote about, and, and they're now here. And we know this in history records. I think it's about 12 to 10 to 12 of them. Um, I think a historian named Josephus is the one who recorded a lot of these. And you know what happened to every single one of those movements? Every time the leader dies, the movement died with it. Every single time. When the leader dies, the passion of the followers died, and the movement died. So what would happen is there are these people who claim Messiah, there will be some kind of uprising, there will be either medium or big kind of movements, and then they're killed by the authorities, and it went away. All the, all the followers stopped. But what happened to the followers of Christ? After the crucifixion, what, what happened to the movement of Christianity? It not only maintained intensity, but it increased quite exponentially. They, for some reason, got bolder. They went forth proclaiming it to the world. And if, when they talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus in the present tense, as if he was still alive. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews chapter 13 says. Jesus is the head shepherd currently guiding and leading his church, 1 Peter chapter 5 says. He's in heaven continually interceding with us. That means continually praying to the Father on our behalf currently, Romans 8 says. But not only that, Jesus' disciples weren't only willing to stick to this truth and, and proclaim it, but they were willing to stick to this truth even to the point of death. They gave their lives for it. Peter was crucified at the end of his years, and John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, you might think that many people, we've talked about this before, but, but you might think that many people die for their religious beliefs all the time, right? That's what extremists do today. We see that that's nothing significant. But you have to remember, back then, Christianity wasn't a religion, quote-unquote, yet. They didn't die for religion. They died for a person, for Jesus, who they claim was risen from the dead. They not only, the movement did not only not die, it ex exponentially grew in intensity, and all his followers decided this is a truth they're willing to give their lives for. It's quite a turn of events. The intensity of Jesus' followers increased. What happened? Interesting uh, 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 comment by a Japanese writer. His name is Shusaku Endo. You probably heard about him before. You probably know him from one of his um, recent major movies or books that was made into a major movie directed or produced by Martin Scorsese. Uh, the book is called Silence. Uh, it's been made into a movie recently. And Shusaku Endo, the author, uh, he wrote this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. If you don't believe in the resurrection, I mean, that's okay, but you're going to have to come up with some, something happened. You're going to have to come up with some kind of explanation that made the disciples of Jesus just propelled exponentially forward for this message, for this person. And I think he continues to saying, when you try and look for another answer, you might find yourselves making just as big of a leap of faith as you would be if you were to believe in the resurrection. What happened? And on top of that, the disciples weren't just hiding around. The, apostles, the apostle Paul made, made a claim that Jesus' resurrected body appeared to over 500 people. They weren't hiding about this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 
3 to 6. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and to, who was Peter, and to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to 500... Remember last time we talked briefly again, these books in the Bible... Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, all these books, especially in the New Testament, they're, made, they're written to be public documents. They're written for everybody to read, for everybody to scrutinize over. Now think about it. If I'm going to make up a lie about something this big, and I'm going to include that lie in a public document, I probably wouldn't claim that there are 500 other witnesses that can confirm my lie. Unless I have 500 people in my team, which is very unlikely. They'd be in this lie together and give their lives for it. Paul is saying, go ahead, check with any of them. This is a public document, check with, with any of these people, they'll confirm. So all these things point to it, but there's another interesting note I wanna focus on in our, in our passage specifically that points the validity uh, of, of the resurrection. It's found in our very first verse. The first person who saw the tomb was who? Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's also the first person Jesus appear to in his resurrection after, uh, after our passage uh, today. And in fact, all the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all that recorded the resurrection of Christ, all the first witnesses were all women. Now, if the resurrection accounts in the Bible were written as an attempt to convince people, as some kind of lie to convince people of this thing, for that culture at the time, it'd be very, very unwise to use women as first witnesses. People back then would have attacked it and said that these women's testimonies are not valid. Why not? Because back then they lived in what we call a misogynistic culture. They lived in a culture where men were much more valued than women. And the testimonies of women don't hold as much weight as a testimony of men. And, and someone actually did attack it. They did attack this, this very argument. His name is Celsus. He's a Greek philosopher. He lived in the second century. He was a big opponent to Christianity. And this is, listen to this. This is what he said to attack the resurrection account in John, in our passage today. He attacked, he attacked it by attacking Mary. He said, there is no way anyone could accept, expect rational men to listen to the testimony of, quote, a hysterical female, unquote. That's what he said. To attack the gospel account, he said, there's no way anyone could expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female. But yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all said women were the first ones that saw Jesus. If, if their primary concern was to make this story sound valid, if, if their primary concern was to make this believable, it'd be unwise, based on the culture back then, to choose women as first witnesses. So why would they do that? Unless the reason of them recording the story is not to try and construct a believable lie that's more marketable to the culture at the time, but to simply tell us what happened. And what happened was Jesus decided to appear first and foremost to women in all four accounts. So it's important for us to note from the first few verses, Mary was not gullible. Okay? She, she used her reason. She understood that people tend to stay dead and she reasoned that something else must have happened. But also, John, the author, was not scared to record Mary as the first witness, nor the other gospel accounts, was afraid to record women as the first witness. 
saying that I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you a lie. I'm not trying to make this story more marketable to you people. I'm, I'm telling you what happened, and I'm not scared if you think otherwise. That's, that's what happened. I can't change the story. Simply telling us what happened. So let's continue the story. Okay, let's, we can consider it now. Let's continue the story. After recording uh, the resurrection account through the eyes or the lenses of, of Mary, we now, in this narrative, move forward and see the resurrection account through the eyes of John and Peter. Okay, and we'll see how the resurrection sure is suspicious, but it's very likely for us now. Where is the body? That's a big question. What all, how do we explain all these things? Why would they include women? But not only is it, is it, is it likely, we're, thinking, we're now seeing that the resurrection is also very relevant for us today, which is our second point. A hope that is unbelievably relevant for us, urgent for us. Let's continue with the story, verse 3 to 7. So Peter went out. So Mary ran back to Peter and John, told them what happened. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going forward to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So the story is, Mary went back to Peter and John. Peter and John together ran to the, room, uh, to the, to the tomb. And this is not a competition, although for some reason John comically records himself beating Peter in this race. I don't know why. Uh, maybe for, uh, There is another reason if you look at the book of John fully. But, but the, the focus now isn't in what they did differently. The focus for us today is what they saw together. It's important that they both, both saw the same thing. So we can't say, well, Peter didn't really see the right thing because it was still dark, right? It was still dawn and light is just starting to shine. So he must have not seen it properly or something. We can't say that because the gospel says, both John and Peter saw the same thing. They saw it together. Remarkably, they saw an empty tomb. But the empty tomb in itself doesn't mean anything, does it? Mary could still have been right. Somebody could still have taken the body of Jesus. That could have been the reason why it's empty. But then what else do they see? They both saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth folded up neatly. This is significant. Okay, it implies two things. First, it affirms that Jesus most likely was not taken. Second, it makes the resurrection extremely relevant to us. Let's, let's talk about the first one. First, it affirms that Jesus more than likely was not taken. See, other arguments against the resurrection is that grave robbers took the body. If, if the Pharisees and if the Romans can't come up with the body, which they couldn't, then, then grave robbers must have taken it for something else. And sure, that's, that's, a, that's another option of explanation. Grave robbers weren't exactly that popular back then, but, but you still had them. They were still around. So, so it's, it's a possible explanation, but look at the scene. It makes that unlikely. Verse 6, they saw the linen cloths lying there. And verse 7, the face cloth folded up in a place by itself. See, back then when people died, the whole body was wrapped in linen from head to toe. Now, I'm not, not trying to be disrespectful here. Um, to Jesus' dead body, or to anyone else that died back then. But the easiest way to explain what it looked like to our culture today, it's much like a pochong. It is. It is. It's much, it, it, you're tied from head to toe. And that, that's what it looked like back then. And on top of the linen that 
tied it from head to toe, they had another face cloth. The face cloth is just another cloth that's square shaped. And the, the, the two corners of the square, they would kind of put behind their head and they'll tie it behind, behind the back of their head so that the face is covered by the cloth. Now we see that both the linen cloth for the body and the face was left there. And not only left there, but the face cloth was folded neatly. If they're grave robbers, they must have had really, really good manners to just, you know, fold it neatly on the side before they took the body. <laughs> and also, it wouldn't be very smart for them to do that, to leave it behind, because these linen cloths, it's, it's, it's not a little bit, it's, it's quite, a, quite a lot. You wrap them over and over again, you see it's linen cloths. It's, it's plural, if you see it in your text. And we know uh, that it is a lot of cloth, and, and, and they can be quite pricey, and the face cloth also, but not only that, um, we know that the linen cloth and the face cloth of, of, is of some value, but we know that in Jesus' wrapped dead body, that there are also 70, 75 pounds of uh, spices and herbs that were expensive, that was kind of uh, lit around it altogether. Let's read John chapter 19, verse 39 to 40. This is when Jesus was buried before our passage today, chapter 19. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus is a pretty wealthy person, implying this thing was probably not cheap, all this stuff. It's curious why the grave robbers would leave all that behind, the linen cloths, the valuable spices, and and do it in such a way that was very polite. So that's the first significance. But the second significance is all this, the scenery that you see, makes the resurrection extremely relevant to you and I today, sitting here, a few thousand years later. Okay, it tells us um, about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body. One, it was truly flesh and blood. Okay, the proof is that the tomb is empty. It was truly the, the flesh and the the body of Jesus that was crucified on the cross is no longer there. So it's, it's physical, but it's not the same as any mortal body. It's different than our mortal bodies. This is very relevant to us. Stick with me. See, the way John the author records this resurrection account is to contrast it to another person who died and was also raised again. Can you think of another person who died and was resurrected? Lazarus. Lazarus died and was resurrected. And if you notice the language and the details of what was involved in both scenes, you'll see a, an obvious contrast that the author is trying to make between the two resurrection accounts. Why, he, why does he do that? Well, let's look at Lazarus's resurrection account really quickly, okay? Um, and see the contrast, specifically in regards to the linen and the face cloth. This is Lazarus's resurrection account. John chapter 11, verse 38 to 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said, this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hand, notice, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Notice the contrast here. Lazarus' body was buried in the same way Jesus' body was. They are both truly dead. He was truly dead like Jesus was. And they, he truly resurrected like Jesus did. But what's the difference? Lazarus' resurrected body was still somehow stuck inside of the linen and the face cloth. And he needed somebody else to unbind him. He needed somebody else to release him. But Jesus' resurrected body had no difficulty getting out of the linen cloth. And, and further, again, this is kind of crazy, a little bit bizarre, um, but John makes a point to record in, in, in verse 19 to 20 and, and the rest of chapter 20, um, to record that Jesus' resurrected body, although it's physical, can somehow enter into locked doors. We, we don't know how the details, let's just read John chapter 20, verse 19 to 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of Jews, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. He, he came out of locked doors. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, which is scarred. John 20, 26, 28, another one. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> it's kind of scary. I was like, whoa, he, he's here. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. See, here the body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus, was able to get out of tightly bound linen without any help. He was entered to able, able to enter closed doors. But this is not a ghost, okay? This is not some kind of hologram. This is truly the body, the physical body of Christ. Because every time the body appears randomly behind locked doors or able to get out of the linen, every time John mentions it, he always also reaffirms that it's a real physical body. It's not some kind of ghost or spirit. He can, yes, he can go through the linen, but the, the, the tomb was also empty, you see. It wasn't the ghost. It was the body. Yes, he went in locked doors the first time, but immediately he showed them the scars in his hands and his side. Look, it's, it's a physical me. Yes, he went through the locked doors a second time, but immediately told Thomas to actually feel the wounds on his feet and on his side, saying that this is my true body, my physical body. The same crucified body, but somehow different. Now, I don't want to get into too much speculation I need to study it more, first of all, but, but what I want to point out and what John, I think, wants to point out to us today is how this makes the resurrection unbelievably relevant to us sitting here today. Because we can clearly say that for those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus is the example of what our fate will be like after our death. Let's, let's look at a few more verses that says... What we will be like after death is we will be also resurrected like Christ. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, what? Our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Those in Christ will be saved in, in body and in soul. You can't separate the two. We, like Christ, will have what is called a glorified body. Remember Romans chapter, 38, chapter 8, 38, 39? Um, not 38, 39, sorry, uh, 29 to 30. Uh, those who he have uh, a call, a predestined, he also calls, he also justifies, um, um, he also what? Glorifies. 
there's, there's a glorified body. Romans 8, 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We will be raised up with glorified bodies like Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, in the context of answering a question in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he gave them the answer to that question uh, in verse 20, a few verses before. But in, fact, um, but in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is another way of saying, uh, when, you, when you pick wine, grapes for wine, uh, from a vine, you would check out if, whether or not this first grape is good or not. If the first grape is good, if the first fruit is good, that means the rest of the vine will produce other grapes that are good. But if the first fruit is bad, that means this vine will also produce bad fruit. What he's saying, Jesus' resurrected body is our first fruits. It's what we will be like when we're resurrected. Paul himself uh, um, um, affirms this and all the other uh, gospel writers. Do. See, the resurrection... Is, is very relevant. Here, here's the point John, a point John Arthur is trying to tell us. Jesus' resurrected body, Jesus' resurrected body is not like Lazarus' resurrected body. See, although Lazarus resurrected, his body was still mortal, meaning poor Lazarus is going to die again. <laughs> He's going to die twice. Jesus' resurrected body was not mortal like Lazarus's. It was, it was glorified. It was eternal. It was different. And this is what we will have. This is the first fruits of our salvation. See, the resurrection of Christ is not irrelevant like talking about Yetis or Bigfoot or UFOs. Friends, our future salvation hangs on this one fact, whether or not Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Our future salvation hangs on that one fact. You know, it means that if, if the resurrection did happen, we will have a body like His. Behold, the guarantee and hope of our future salvation. But if the resurrection did not happen... That means we're all doomed. If the resurrection did not happen, everything we've been talking about is a big lie. We might as well stop and die out like all the other mis false messianic movements in that day. If the resurrection did not happen, Paul says that if it doesn't happen, our faith is pointless. It's in vain. We're actually being very manipulative to people because we're lying about not only the resurrection, but everything else that Jesus is claims. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. If Christ did not rise from the dead, our future hope is dead, is futile. All his claims that he made about the cross, all his claims that he said about being the Lamb of God, it's false. And we might as well die out right now, just like any other messianic false movements at the time. The implications is that the resurrection of Christ is much more valuable than the $10 million at stake here. Your eternity hangs on it. Life eternal with our Creator, as it was meant to be, in the garden in Genesis 1. John is here saying, Behold, Christian, an empty tomb. The Romans and the Pharisees can't, don't have an explanation for it. Later, we actually see in Matthew chapter 28, 
the Pharisees paying people to keep them quiet about the resurrection because they had no other explanation. They didn't want Jesus' claims about eternal life to be true. Paul is saying, here, this is a public document. Here are 500 witnesses that saw it. Check, confirm with any of them. All the records include women as the first ones encountering Jesus, saying, we're not trying to manufacture a marketable story here. We're telling you what happened. Jesus rised from the dead. And the disciples themselves gave their lives radically to it. They're changed by it, even to the point of being willing to die for this truth. For what truth? For what message? That Jesus truly is the Lamb of God that he truly has died for our sins, that he truly has taken away the consequences meant for us on that cross. And here through him we find forgiveness of our sin and our shame. And that if we receive that, we also will be resurrected like him. Meaning our sins are forgiven on the cross and our future salvation is guaranteed. He has defeated death and death no longer has a hold on you if you are in him. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But let's end here, point three. Friends, this is, a, this is a beautiful promise, and it's exciting for us to hear this and to be reminded of it, and it's much more valuable than money. But the question that we might be asking is, who is this promise for? Can I be partakers of it? Can I receive this great salvation offered to me? How can I be united with Christ in his death so that I may attain life eternal like him, what must I do? At this point, we might be thinking, how much work do I need to put in to be united with the Savior, to be raised like him? Because I'm kind of behind right now, to be honest. <laughs> and I need to catch up if I look at my life in the past and even maybe my current life. Well, it's a great question. How much work must we put in to be partakers of this? Let's, let's end at our last point. It is a hope that extends even to the worst of us. Let's go back to the setting of the scene one last time. How much work must we put in to be partakers of this great salvation? To get to the answer, we have to look one more time at the setting, specifically at what day the resurrection occurred. And remember in the introduction I said I'm going to connect this to John chapter 1 and chapter 2? Here, here's a connection. It's beautiful how John wrote this. We've seen in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, that there's a lot of connections John wrote in regards to the first five verses in John chapter 1 and the first five verses in Genesis chapter 1. Let's read John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, and we'll, we'll remind ourselves how it connects to Genesis. In the beginning, John says, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word. How does Genesis start? In the beginning, God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that made that was made. What did God do in Genesis? He created the world. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What did God do in Genesis 1? There was darkness over the earth, and what did He say? Let there be light. John is trying to connect his first five verses to the first five verses of Genesis. But John's connection to Genesis chapter 1 extends beyond just these five verses. It goes all throughout chapter 1 to chapter 2. Stick with me. It'll, it'll connect. Specifically, he, he, he does this by the number of days mentioned all throughout chapter 1. Read it again in your own time if you want. But if you look at chapter 1 up into the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see 
Jesus' first days, ministry on earth, uh, the, the account of his first days, you'll see John record an, a total of six days specified by John. Okay, I'll just read it again. You can trust me in this, but I think the next slide, uh, you'll see the breakdown. In, in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, is the first day of Jesus' ministry. That's the first day Jesus was recorded doing ministry by John. And in, chapter, and in chapter 1, verse 29, it says, it starts off with the next day, which is the second day. And then verse 35, it starts off again with the next day. This is the third day. And then verse 43, it starts off again with the next day. This is the fourth day. And then we end chapter 1. We go to chapter 2, verse 1. We talked about it two weeks ago. Remember the Jesus turning water to wine? It says, on the third day, including day number 4, so four days, the third day including day number 4, 4, 5, 6. So when Jesus turned water into wine, it was the sixth day of his ministry on earth recorded by John. Equating the whole section of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 to Genesis, what did God do in the first six days in the creation account? He worked. He put in work, right? He, he created all the earth. But there's a tension here that the readers would have. If you know how many days was mentioned in Genesis, how many days was mentioned in Genesis? Seven. And if you know that, which most people do know, the readers would have had read John and seen all the connections to the Genesis account, and they would have asked what question? Where is day seven? Where is the day of rest? And that tension, the author John continues to make his readers hold on tightly to until we read our passage today. There's an unresolved tension that's resolved here. Where is the seventh day? When did Jesus resurrect? Verse 1 of our passage, on the first day of the week, Sunday. Here, friends, here's your seventh day. This is the day of rest. Until now, our Lord had to put in work. What he's trying to tell us is that Jesus has completed all that the Father tasked him with. And now, as he said on the cross, it is what? finished. It's finished. The day of work is done. And now the seventh day is here, the first day of the week. It's finally time to rest. Rest from what? From the curse of death that we have put upon ourselves because of our own sin. He's defeated it. He's won. God has died in our place that he may defeat death for us. He's paid the penalty of our sins so he can deliver us to everlasting life. Here on the seventh day, on a Sunday, the first day of the week, as note, light starts to shine through the darkness in a garden, mind you. You see all the imageries here? Do you see the picture of Genesis 1 here? Here, as light shines through the darkness of dawn, there's life anew. He has risen the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the sinner's hope, my hope, your only hope. How much work must I put to attain this resurrection of life, you ask? John says, none. God says, rest. Why? Because we'll never be good enough to attain it. Fellow sinners, hear God say to you this Sunday, rest. Rest. I've done all the work. I've lived a perfect life. 
I've died for your sins and I've defeated death and rised again. What you must do is come to me and rest. Don't put in any more work for your salvation. You can't do it. Receive it. Receive me. That's too easy. That can't be true. This kind of thing is going to make me just lazy. I'm just going to rest every time, right? I'm just going to be lazy. No, it's not. Were the disciples lazy? No. They saw this truth and they died for it. <laughs> Receiving this doesn't make you lazy. Receiving this makes you worshipers. True worshipers that can claim no credit, no glory for your own salvation, but give all back to him to the day you die. They give their whole lives to it, not to earn their salvation because they realize their salvation cost their God everything. But some of us may still feel a bit of hesitance. What about me, you might ask? How do I know that I have not fallen too far away from this grace? I know that Jesus offers it, but how do I know that I can attain it that it's for me. Well, let's, let's end here. The last few verses. So after all this drama, the empty tomb, the confusion Mary had, John and Peter seeing it in verse 9, after all this drama, usually a story would end climactically, right? But look at verse 10. How does the story end? Then the disciples went back to their homes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's it? That's the end? Okay. <laughs> Just go back to your homes. And it's kind of anticlimactic, right? Well, because it wasn't the end. That was just a transition to the next scene in verses 11 to 18. Read it when you're at home later. What happens? The most climactic thing in all human history, history perhaps, happened. We see, finally, the resurrected Jesus appearing. This is huge. This is amazing. Jesus, God made flesh, died, now has risen again. Who might be the unbelievably privileged human being to first encounter Jesus? Was it some religious guy somewhere? Oh, maybe he was one of his best disciples, perhaps? No. Who was it? Mary. It was Mary, again. Think about that. How offensive do you think this would have been to the misogynistic, machochistic culture back then? The first person recorded in the history of mankind to have seen the risen Jesus was a woman. Not just any woman, if you read Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, a woman who at one point had seven, seven demons possessed her. She was demon-possessed. And if you picture somebody who's demon-possessed, it's not a pretty picture. An original reader of this book of John in that day might have read it and thought, you're telling me, Christians, you're telling me that your God rose from the dead, fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, conquered death, and out of all the people he could have first revealed himself to, he chose a woman? A hysterical woman, as Celsus puts it earlier? Just not any woman, but one that was possessed by demons? Why would he do that? Friends, he did that to make the gospel message loud and clear that he does not choose based on past righteousness, that he does not choose based on popular acclaim, that he does not choose based on nobility. He chose Mary. And you look how he addresses Mary when he first sees Mary. He says, Mary. And Mary fell to her knees. It's to tell people back then who thought Mary was the worst candidate. And it's to tell you, sitting here today, 
that might think you're the worst candidate, that the gospel is a hope that extends even to the worst of us. Rest. Stop working. You can't do it. Rest. Receive him. You're forgiven. It is finished. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, how undeserving I am of such a great gift. How unworthy I am to even consider being someone who deserves even a bit of this. But yet you have told us you've done all the work and now we must rest. You are the fulfillment of the Sabbath. You are the one who died and raised again that we can no longer, or we can realize all our work to earn our own salvation is futile. Father, help us rest. Such an easy command, but for some reason so hard for so many of us to do. And if we have not yet received this mercy, I beg you that you make it real and effective in our hearts. And if we have received it, Father, we pray that you remind us of it every day and that you tell us to rest, that we, it's done, it's finished, you've risen, and you have prepared for us our future hope and fate, a place with the Father in the new heavens and new earth. And now we can enjoy you fully then, but beginning now, for the same power indwells in us today, as you say, the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for being humble enough to die for us, but being powerful enough to rise from the grave and defeat death for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.